The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. privilege tonight to have Reverend Andy Steyer with us, a son of the church, the son, one of the sons of Marge and Jerry Steyer, uh, and husband of Heidi and father of their three children. We're so glad to have all of them here tonight. Uh, if you've been following what's been happening in their lives over the past years, Andy's completed a multi-year internship at our daughter church, now a sister congregation, Proclamation Presbyterian Church in Mount Joy, and um, was called to Canal Saline's Presbyterian Church in West Virginia this year, and so was called there and then ordained, and we're just so glad that he's here for a weekend here and could be among us to preach the Word of God to us. So... um, pleasure that I introduce him, and let us receive God's word from Andy. Thank you, Dr. Light. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Galatians. We'll be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 14 this evening. Uh, At my home church in West Virginia, I've been preaching through the book of Hebrews, and when I was talking to Dr. Walker about what to preach this evening, he said, don't preach on the book of Hebrews. We're already going through that, and you're already several weeks ahead of me, which is kind of nice for sermon prep. Sometimes I can just listen to your sermons. And So I was considering what passages to preach. I was reminded of a series of the Book of Galatians that we did at Proclamation uh, about, I think it was last summer. And, and I thought to myself, you know, this passage, I think, connects very well with some of the major themes in the book. Of Hebrews. So again, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14 this evening. The Apostle Paul writes, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... 
Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is indeed precious and life-giving, a double-edged sword that pierces to the heart of who we are. Father, we pray that tonight as we hear the reading and the preaching of your word, that your Holy Spirit would use it to feed and nourish the souls of your people, to strengthen our faith, and to call home to the Good Shepherd any lost sheep who, would, who might be among us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you are at least probably somewhat aware of what was happening in the Church of Galatia during the time that this book was written. Just as a quick reminder, Galatia, the small church, there were false teachers coming into the church. It was primarily a Gentile church, and these false teachers were saying to them, you must have faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, that is true, but you also must observe the old covenant laws, what we today might call the ceremonial laws of Israel. They were teaching faith in Christ to a degree, but also teaching full obedience to these laws. Primarily circumcision was required for salvation. So you see, they had elements of truth just like all the heretics throughout the history of the church, they had elements of truth in what they were teaching which made them extremely dangerous to the life of that young church. And this is what Paul is spending so much time and energy combating in the opening chapters of the book of Galatians. He wants to remind the church there that no work of any law can merit or earn anything with the Holy God. We cannot add to the work of Jesus Christ in accomplishing our salvation. These false gospel teachers, these heretics, were coming into Galatia, and really they were trying to supplement faith in Christ with keeping the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul knows, as William Hendrickson once wrote, that a Christ supplemented is really a Christ supplanted. Any supplement to the cross of Jesus Christ is really to undermine the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone has accomplished our salvation. And Paul has had enough of these false gospel preachers trying to add to the finished and completed work of our Lord and Savior. He is deeply concerned. In a sense, he is very much worried for them because it seems that the Galatians are being lured away from the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. So in this passage, and this is really the crux of his apologetic 
concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul is going to make two appeals to the Galatians. Two appeals that he hopes will help them see the truth of the one and only gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And brothers and sisters, this is good for us, I think, tonight to read this passage, to hear the appeals that the Apostle Paul is making to this young church, this appeal to the one true gospel. It's important for us today, in the 21st century, to be reminded that Jesus Christ alone is our hope for salvation. The first appeal, then, that Paul makes uh, is to appeal to the personal experience of the Christians in Galatia. And this is found in verses 1 through 5. And I believe, as I talk about this first off, it's important to note what experiences Paul is speaking about here. Some of you know uh, I was raised in this church, and when I was 18, I left for five years, and I attended a a charismatic church. And uh, I came out of that and came back to Westminster, and I have been in the PCA ever since. But I get very antsy because of my experience, oddly enough. I get antsy when people start talking about personal experiences as it concerns religious truth because of my time in a church that was so experience-driven. But what Paul is talking about here is not some kind of subjective experience. What he is appealing to, what he is talking about here, is these Christians experiencing salvation, which the Holy God has indeed accomplished and applied in real time and in real space. And it's a shared experience among all true believers. Our testimonies may all be different. But the work of the Spirit is the same work in all who call on Christ in faith. So what Paul is appealing to here is not an experience that only a few Christians claim to have, or some individualistic experience that can't be verified by empirical evidence or can't be supported by the Word of God. Rather, what he's appealing to is the universal experience of God's people when they receive new life in Jesus Christ. And given the universality of the salvation experience, Paul, in our passage this evening, simply cannot believe or understand how it is that the Galatians have so easily been led astray by these false teachers. He says, who has bewitched you? It's as if these false teachers have come in and cast a spell on these Christians. How else could Paul work out in his own mind that the Galatians seem so eager to follow these heretics. What other explanation could there be? He knows that the Galatians are not ignorant of the true gospel, and yet they are running the risk of trading the true gospel for the lies of Satan. They are trading the peace that they've known in Christ for unrest. They are trading the assurance of being the sons of the true and living God for doubt and uncertainty. They are, treating, they are trading the freedom won for them in the precious blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the bondage of sin and death. And how could this be? Paul says 
that he has preached the gospel to them so clearly and so vividly that it was, as he says in verse 1 of our text, as if they saw the crucifixion of Jesus Christ with their own eyes. In Paul's mind, there is simply no excuse for abandoning the gospel. Now, brothers and sisters, this, of course, is a warning to us. Well, the gospel is rightly proclaimed, as I know that it is rightly proclaimed week in and week out from this pulpit. It is as if we are seeing the crucifixion of our Lord with our own eyes. And Paul's warning is clear. We must not slip into the mentality of works righteousness or any other false gospel, even for a moment. Paul's warning for us here is to not trade the truth of the gospel for the lies of the evil one, trading our freedom for slavery. Just like the Galatians, we have no excuse for abandoning the gospel. So what Paul is going to do here is ask the Galatians a series of questions, both to try and figure out, I think, in his own mind, what is happening here in this first century church, but also to try and challenge the Galatians in their thinking. And we see these questions, Paul asks them in verses 3, 4, and 5. And again, this is all part of him making an appeal to the salvation experience that these Christians had when they first heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first question, verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, Paul asks, are you now being perfected by the flesh? How is it, he's asking, that you know that your salvation began by a work of the Spirit, and yet now you are being lured astray by thinking that your works are going to complete it? Do you not see the contradiction there? How can salvation, if it is indeed a work of the Holy Spirit, be completed by your works of the law? Do you think you are able to finish what the Holy Spirit alone has begun in you? That's his first question, verse 3. Secondly, verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? You know, there's another way to translate that word that's translated as suffer here, and that's to use the word experience. Many commentators seem to favor translating that Greek word to experience instead of suffering because they believe it adds consistency to Paul's argument. Paul is saying, have you experienced so many things in vain? It seems that way to Paul because what this church was now believing the false gospel they were beginning to embrace runs contrary to their own salvation experiences. He cannot understand how it is that they're so quick to embrace a teaching that would contradict their own salvation experiences, their own sufferings as it pertains to the truth of the gospel. But notice also, by the way, in this second question, Paul, uh, he's not given up all hope. He has that little tagline after the question. He says, if indeed it was in vain. I love it because I think that's showing us that Paul is holding on to some hope here. Maybe it isn't all in vain. Maybe the Galatians will repent of their sins. 
repent of their sins and return to the one and true gospel. Paul has a glimmer of hope in this discourse. And his hope, no doubt, flows out of the knowledge that if the Holy Spirit truly did begin the work of salvation among the Galatians, then the Holy Spirit will indeed finish and perfect the work of salvation among the Galatians. That's the hope that Paul has here for them. That's the hope that we all have. Hope grounded in the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit to finish what he has begun in raising dead sinners to new life in Jesus Christ. So that's Paul's second question. Thirdly, then, in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, whether Paul is talking about outward miracles, what we might call signs and wonders, or whether he is speaking of the miracle of inward spiritual and moral renewal that the Holy Spirit works in the hearts and souls and minds of all believers, the point is the same. It's the Spirit who bestows these blessings to the church through faith and not by keeping the law not by our own works and efforts. And that's what Paul wants these Christians in Galatia to remember and consider here by asking this third question. Remember that it's through hearing by faith that the Spirit has done these things, not by your moral uprightness, not by the works of the law. And that's his third question to them. And this third question in verse 5 is Paul's sort of transition verse, because now he's going to transition from this appeal to the personal experiences of the Galatian Christians to now begin an appeal to the very Word of God itself. He begins this appeal to Scripture in verse 6, and this is an amazing appeal that, that he makes. Where does he go to build his case for the true gospel? He goes to Father Abraham. He goes to the Old Testament And let me just say something briefly here about Paul's use of the Old Testament. This passage, I think, stands in stark contrast to comments made by really by many popular evangelical pastors, but one in particular who has told us that we need to detach the Old Testament from our faith. This this man said, and this is a quote, first century church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. Is Paul unhitching the Jewish scriptures from his Christian faith here? By no means. In fact, he is grounding his Christian faith on the Old Testament scriptures. And he's doing it, amazingly, to a church made up of Gentile converts to the faith. Brothers and sisters, we are, we are people of the book. We are people of both the Old and New Testament. Because this Bible 
that we hold today is not some divided book, but rather one unified, glorious revelation of the true and living God to us, His people, revealing His wonderful plan to redeem a people for Himself, to be part of His everlasting kingdom. This preacher, as popular as he is, is is absolutely wrong when he says the apostles unhitched the Old Testament from the faith of the early church. Rather, Paul and Peter and all of the apostles and Jesus Christ himself proclaimed the Old Testament scriptures boldly. They preached it as the word of God. They proclaimed Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. And that's what Paul's doing here in his second appeal. He is proclaiming Christ from Genesis chapter 15, going back to God's promise to Abraham. He's proclaiming that true righteousness, that justification, that salvation is by faith. And by going to Abraham, he's saying that salvation is not only now in the new covenant by faith, but it has always been by faith. This was the cry of the Protestant reformers, wasn't it? This is what drove the Reformation. The justification is by faith alone. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is not a Protestant invention. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that the Christian church has confessed and believed Throughout the ages, it's the gospel that Paul and all the other apostles proclaim. It's the gospel that Jesus Christ himself proclaimed. And as we see here, it's the gospel that the Holy Spirit proclaimed to Father Abraham. Every single person who has come into the blessing of eternal life and communion with the holy triune God has done it by faith alone. Every saint in the Old Testament Every saint in the New Testament, every saint in our current age is a saint of Jesus Christ by faith alone. Paul, by going to Abraham, is making the point that God has one plan of salvation. God has one gospel. The law was never about accomplishing salvation. The law was never intended to save, to justify, to make a person righteous. Faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whether it was that forward-looking faith to the promised Messiah that Abraham had, or our faith that looks back at the work of Christ in his life and death and resurrection and glorification. Faith is the means through which the merits and the atoning work of Christ is applied to us. It's the means through which we are justified. And that's Paul's point here in verses 6 through 14. By pointing to Abraham, what he's ultimately saying is, not only are these false teachers not true Christians, they're not even true Israelites in a spiritual sense. They may be ethnic Jews, yes. And they were claiming superiority because they were ethnic Jews. They were Abraham's ethnic offspring. And Paul says, no way. If you do not share in the faith of Father Abraham, then you're missing it. You're missing what being a son of Abraham is really about. It's right there in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It means that these false teachers have no ground to stand upon whatsoever. They're false in every sense of the word. 
They're false teachers. They're false Christians. And even in a real sense, in a religious sense, in a spiritual sense, false Israelites because they did not understand that Jesus Christ alone is the fulfillment of all that the law and the prophets spoke about. And yet you and I, And all who are looking and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, Paul says, we are the sons of Abraham by faith. This is why we have our children sing, Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them and so are you. We truly are, even us, Gentiles, wild branches, even us because we share in our father Abraham's faith are the true children of Abraham. William Hendrickson, again, he said it like this, even though a man be a Hebrew of Hebrews, he is not, in the spiritual sense, a son of Abraham unless he be a true believer. Conversely, if he be a true believer in Christ, he is a son of Abraham, whether he be a Gentile or a Jew by race. You see, brothers and sisters, this is not what some have called replacement theology. This is not the idea that the church has replaced Israel. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is not that Israel was replaced. He is saying that it has expanded. Expanded to include all of us. Include all who look to Christ and faith alone for our salvation. It's the fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham. This expansion isn't something new. It's, it's what God always intended for his people. We see it in verse 8. The scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This body of believers, this body of Jew and Gentile brought together in peace through faith in Jesus Christ, it's God keeping His promise to Abraham to make him the father of many tongues and tribes and nations. God, our eternally faithful God, has kept His promise to Abraham. And we here tonight, are part of that fulfillment to the promise. I've said this before in other sermons, so maybe you've heard me say this if you've heard me preach before, but think about this. Do you think that Abraham would have ever imagined that we would be here tonight in the 21st century, thousands of years after God gave him this promise, that we would be here on a landmass that he did not even know existed. That we would be here tonight calling on the same God, participating in the same promises, looking through Christ to Abraham and calling him the father of our faith. It's absolutely amazing. It's amazing to see God's covenant faithfulness here. Let me bring this all back around. And conclude the sermon by briefly looking at verses 10 through 14. It's a rich, robust section of the book of Galatians. And it really does deserve its own sermon. But this section does conclude Paul's thoughts. Uh, it, It concludes his appeals and his arguments to the Galatians. Because this section is about the glorious work of Christ 
in redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You know, the terrible truth of false gospels is that should we rely on our own work for salvation, instead of bringing us eternal life, it brings about our own condemnation. To try and earn our salvation through works is the most vain attempt a human could ever make. Because we are attempting to earn favor of a, earn the favor of a perfectly holy God. There's not a person among us who would or could ever say that they have achieved a level of perfection in their works, in their lives, could ever say that they have kept all of God's holy and righteous commandments. And you see, there's, no, there's none of this, well, you know, at least I'm better than that guy over there. Paul says in our text tonight by quoting Deuteronomy that everyone, everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law is cursed. They're damned. To fail to keep even the most minute detail of the law is, as the Apostle James says, to break all of it. And to fail to keep it is to bring condemnation upon ourselves. The standard is one of holy perfection. This is why Paul quotes the prophet Habakkuk by saying, The righteous shall live by faith. How else can we live? We can't live according to our own righteousness, that's for sure. So what are we to do? The answer, of course, is to place our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that by faith in Jesus Christ, who, by taking on humanity, becoming truly man, who as a man lived a perfect life we could not live, Christ, the only one who has ever abided by all things written in the book of the law, Christ, the only one who deserves eternal life and perfect fellowship with the Father. Christ, the only one to not merit the law's curses, but rather merited the law's blessing. The only one who is truly righteous in every way by making Christ the object of our faith, our trust, our hope. We know that we will be counted righteous before God. Who else could we ever rest and trust in. When we come before the Father's throne, will we say, have mercy on me, Father, for the sake of my good works? Who would ever dare to say that? We will say, as hopefully we all say now, have mercy on me, Father, for the sake of your perfect, glorious, wonderful Son. He is my mediator. He is my great high priest. He is my sacrifice. He is my covering. His righteousness clothes me in radiant garments. When you look at me, don't see my sin. See the righteousness of my Savior. And amazingly, that is what the Father sees. He sees Christ in us. He sees His Son's righteousness counted to us as if Christ's works were our own. This is why the saints in the Old Testament called Yahweh the Lord our righteousness. This is why salvation is by faith alone. It's because of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, 
who made satisfaction for all of our sins. He alone is our salvation. Paul says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. On the cross, he took the curse that our sin deserved, physical, spiritual death, the very wrath of God itself. He took it so that you and I and all who call on the name of Jesus in repentance and faith can have that glorious gift of eternal life so that you and I and all who place their hope, their trust, their faith in Christ Jesus can receive the very blessing of Abraham, that blessing, that promise that though we were pagans in a foreign land, enemies of God, dead in our sins and trespasses, now we're the sons and daughters of the true and living God adopted into his family, made co-heirs with Christ himself, being indwelled by the promised Holy Spirit. And we cannot help but say in response to the true gospel, praise the Lord God Almighty that the blessing given to Abraham, God's eternal salvation has come to us, the Gentiles. It's a wonderful salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you would work out such a wonderful plan of salvation, that you would give us the righteousness we need in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the true gospel, that justification, righteousness, salvation, eternal life in your presence can only be found in Jesus Christ and that it is given to us freely by faith in him. We thank you, Father, that it truly is that simple and glorious and wonderful Thank you for the true gospel. Lord, I do pray that if there are any among us who have not trusted in Christ for their salvation, that they would leave here today doing so and know that all of their sins have been forgiven, have been paid for, have been taken by Christ on the cross, and know that they have been given true righteousness and given the gift of true eternal life and given the right to call you their Heavenly Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.